Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show, or welcome if you are a first-time viewer. I hope you will like the show and subscribe. And, of course, I hope all of my good critics out there will help me spread the word about my show and channel around on the interwebs or internet or whatever on social media so that uh, more people will come around and see the awesome wonderfulness that is this channel. All right. So we have some really good questions this week, but I wanted to get a couple quick words in uh, for those interested. We are now in our new home. We have just moved and uh, just set up and everything here. And we have done two live streams, uh, one um, today, one yesterday. We do our live show every Friday night, uh, Critical Conversations, and we did that right here. And then I did a live podcast this week about how to talk to cult members. So if you're looking for tips or guidance or any kind of like idea of what's up with, with talking to people, who are in a destructive cult or in a weird mental place or, you know, are connected in perhaps uh, in some coercive control situation where they are under the thumb of some kind of predator or narcissist or something like that. This information is useful for that. And also, of course, if you're talking to people who are deep into religious or conspiracy or other, you know, kind of nutty uh, kind of mindsets, uh, and not all people who have religious beliefs, of course, are that way, but it can get extreme, and, and we all know that. And so if you are dealing with or have family or friends who are in those kinds of situations, that's what I did the podcast for. So I hope you guys will check that out. Uh, and finally, I just wanted to put a quick plug in um, that I have uh, added my Venmo address onto my list of things that you can uh, connect to so that you can show the channel some support and some love. And of course, my, my Patreon page is linked below there. And if you want to provide ongoing support for this show, even a dollar a month, I mean, even getting a cup of coffee is actually super helpful. Uh, for what I am trying to do here. So I want to encourage anybody who is getting something from my channel to uh, to help support it so I can keep going. All right, guys, that all being said, let's get on with your questions. Nick C. Justice Clarence Thomas is a member of the U.S. Supreme Court. His wife, Virginia, a.k.a. Ginny, as we are now finding out, has been a QAnon enthusiast for a while. Before that, she was active in the Tea Party. It's also a matter of public record that back in the 1980s, as a young congressional aide, she had been victimized by LifeSpring, a cult masquerading as a for-profit human potential organization, and later spoke out against its abusive practices. With this in mind, what are your thoughts on cult hopping and cult hoppers. More specifically, do you think there are personality types more susceptible to recruitment by cults? There is research out there suggesting that cults often take advantage of major life events, loss of a loved one, long-distance relocation on a short notice, etc. But the phenomenon of cult hopping seems to suggest that some people may be wired in a way that makes them easy targets for cults, life events or not. What do you think? 
Nick, I think this is a great question, and it gets me to talk a little bit about uh, some ideas I have about how we go about categorizing people and thinking about their trauma or how they uh, how their personalities are. Right? We have lots and lots of personality tests and categories and silos that we can put people in when we start thinking about personality types. But I actually kind of am not really of that school of thought. I used to be, and I used to talk about and think about personality types. And, you know, you talk about, for example, narcissists. So there's a personality type. Well, actually, we categorize that as a personality disorder. Uh, and it's, and again, it's more over for psychiatry to deal with. I talk about more now the concept of predators. And a predator is not a personality type. It's a behavior type. It's a way that a person chooses to act in the world. And of course, those actions are based on their view of the world. Um, but the, the, the thing about a personality type that I sort of push back against or feel a little bit like, mm, I'm not so sure that that's true anymore, is the idea that somebody is in a is is for their whole life they are this kind of person and there's this other guy and he ain't that he's this kind of person and i kind of go hmm, i'm not so sure that people are that way i think people are a lot more fluid in the potential of what they can and can't be in a life. And while certainly there are limits to any of us as to what we can and can't do or can and can't accomplish, um, we have a lot of latitude. And I will present myself as an example of exactly what I'm talking about, where I am at one point in my life an extreme, fanatical, hardcore cult member not a very good critical thinker, not a very good skeptical person, right? Very devoted, very, very online with my cult ideals. Uh, and now I am a, the complete opposite of that in so many ways. At a very fundamental basic level, there are still many things about myself that are similar or the same to when I was in the cult, but the value set, the moral uh uh, views that I have, the uh, the whole attitude with which I approach life is completely different. So am I? Is that time period reflective of my personality type, or is now, or is there, are we talking about something a little more fundamental? And so that's why I kind of go. Hmm, let's talk about something maybe a little bit more fundamental. And here I'm talking about trauma, and I'm talking about stages of development. So these are uh, more kind of psychology ideas. And um, what I mean by these things is that as we grow, uh, we have certain experiences and we have these things called stages of development. And this is, this is just another way of, of sort of framing how we grow in life and how across the, the band of people, you know, most people sort of experience certain, certain things. There's certain hoops we jump through. There's certain expectations that you can expect, right, that people will meet or that they will accomplish or certain things, that the ways of looking at the world, stuff like that. For example, uh, between the ages of zero and three years old, a whole lot of things are established. A whole lot of framework is established for children, toddlers, infants, right? 
as they grow there in those in those crucial years about attachment. If you look into attachment theory and uh, and the different kinds of attachment that can develop during those years, those formative foundational years will establish a person's trust level to a great degree. Will it, or help, will certainly establish some fundamentals of how that person thinks about trust and the nature of the relationships they're going to have, and uh, in you know certain certain uh, uh, groundwork is laid for morality and for integrity. There's there's some very interesting things happening with people before they're even talking, you know, and then you move forward into the you know the next stage, and you have a whole nother round of things that are that are happening. And the reason I bring this up in answer to your question, Nick, because this is actually on this line, is because rather than look at personality types, I look at it as what happened to this person as they as they became a person. How did they how did they grow? And more importantly, what was left unfulfilled? What is still sitting there like an open wound that is not dealt with? Because that tends to be the thing that is most exposed when these big change of life events happen that you referenced in your question. You mentioned quite correctly that uh, a loss of a loved one, long distance relocation on a short notice, etc., with these these massive changes that are always accompanied by stress and some anxiety and some like, Ugh. well, why do some people feel that way about these big changes that happen to them and other people don't? Well, it has to do with how they approach their lives and and the and the do they have past trauma? Do they have past bad attachments or trust issues or morality issues or relationship issues? Right, which are you know the the kind of things that develop in the next stage, right? How do you get along with people? Are you kind of a bully type, or are you kind of a submissive type? Well, some of that stuff gets established pretty early on, right, and sticks with you for the rest of your life. But the weak spots we have, these these the or the trauma that we carry around with us, is what comes to the surface during these big change of life events where we're stressed, we're traumatized, we're feeling traumatized. And then the cult comes in, or then the predator comes in. And in that moment of weakness, when our guard is down, our anxiety is high, the, the, the neurotransmitters are flowing in an anxious, fearful way, and here's a lifeline. Here's a safety net. Here's some help. Well, we all need help. There's not one of us who doesn't need somebody else's help from time to time. So when we get help, we appreciate it. We want it. And when it's friendly and when it seems to actually work, we gravitate to it and we go on to it. Of course we do. Uh, whether it comes from friends, family, strangers, whatever, right? We all talk about the benefits of charity, giving and receiving, etc. So this is all just part and parcel of, of, our, of our existence. But it's a way, it's a path for manipulators and predators to take advantage of us. Because, because in those wounded, raw moments of our life where our guard is down, our sociality, our social manners are not really what they should be because we're stressed and, you know, we need some help. Now, when it comes to, uh, rather than, again, um, because all this earlier stuff exists or because we carry the stuff around with us and we approach our lives the way that we do, um, cults take advantage of that. But here's what cults don't do. 
is cults don't actually resolve the reason why that person is in that state in the first place. In other words, Ginny, uh, as a, an example, and I'm just going to use her as a complete, you know, I don't know really much of anything about her backstory, but using your question as a springboard here, you, you, we have here that she was involved with LifeSpring. She realized it was abusive. She got out of it. Well, why did she get involved with it? Well, probably because there was some earlier trauma, law, you know, missing stages of development, a bad attachment. Like there's a lot of different things going on, but something going on there that caused her to be hooked into that group in the first place. Well, during her experience with that group, she came to realize the group was abusing her and she got out of it. But the needs that drove her into that group in the first place are still there. Odds are, I mean, in in her case, with cult hopping people, because this is what your question is really about, that need is unfulfilled. And so in another time of stress or trauma or major change of life or just in the course of their regular existence, those needs come out, those emotional needs, right? As I relate it back to those podcasts a few weeks ago with Rachel, those emotional needs are unfulfilled. So rather than think of it as a personality type, I'm reframing this in the terms of the individual's needs. Whatever those needs are, they are unfulfilled, and that causes them to seek another group or another activity or another person to fulfill them. Uh, because they are not aware or they are unable to deal with it themselves. They're either unaware that this is something that they've got going on, and there's all kinds of issues we all have that we're not totally aware of, and or they are aware of it, keenly aware of it, but they don't have any power over it or power of choice over it or, or are able to deal with it, and they know they need some help. And they look to these groups because... If you look out across the spectrum of life and you look at what's advertised in, in the internet, on media, in social circles, who's offering solutions to the kind of problems that draw people into these cults? Interpersonal relationship problems, personal trauma, personal medical or chronic pain issues, um, loss of a loved one, right? Loss of uh, some other thing. What, what, like what, what is it that is offering solutions to all of those problems? Mostly cults and pseudoscientific quackery and nonsense and religion. Those are the things that are offering solutions or sucre for those problems, right? Science doesn't really have a whole lot of sympathy on its shoulder uh, for, you know, pulling. There's no, there's no scientific institutes you know, that are, that are particularly selling <laughs> solutions to this stuff. Uh, so you find, you find a tendency toward culty stuff, pseudoscientific quackery, in the solutions being offered for these problems, for these emotional needs. And so the chances are that if a person is uh, not scientifically literate or is not self-aware enough or not getting therapy or whatever the thing is, that they're not seeing in themselves, they could fall for another false solution to try to fill the void, right? Try to solve that problem that they're carrying around with them. 
And I I hope that all uh, is as clear as I wanted it to be uh, as far as why cult hopping happens. It's, you know, it really just comes down to those unfulfilled emotional needs and the group doesn't fulfill them. So they go looking for another one that will. Uh, and, and, and not everybody, of course, does this because some people, uh, do, I guess I, I'll throw myself out there, um, cause I haven't joined another cult yet. I mean, I've, I've certainly, you know, adopted some funny ideas since I left Scientology and had to reevaluate some of them, but I haven't joined another cult. That's not happened. And of course I, I credit all the work and education and, and, and work <laughs> that I've done to that, right? If you're willing to do that work, if you're willing to dive in and, and find out what's up with yourself and uh, either through self-examination or education or therapy or whatever, um, then you, the chances are reduced that you're going to try to fulfill those emotional needs by finding some other cult, right? Because you're going to more recognize, more easily recognize what a cult is. And I doubt that Clarence Thomas's wife knows a goddamn thing about cults, <laughs> especially if she's a QAnon supporter, right? She doesn't have a clue what the problem is. And, uh, and she's trying to solve problems in herself, within herself, that have been unresolved for decades, I, I am quite sure. So uh, that's what I can say about that, and I hope that was useful in some fashion. Shimoda Tala. How would one go about separating any remaining sense of spirituality from tainted cult beliefs? For instance, if you were in a cult that used meditation and it feels tainted, but you'd still like to meditate occasionally and not have it be mentally slash emotionally connected to the former cult, or for former cult members who still retain some religious beliefs after leaving, how can one separate these things, untangle everything, and reclaim, quote-unquote, the spirituality that the cult manipulated and abused? Well, this is a very, very personal question for each person because it really is going to be individual for each person how they go about it. I can give a general idea of therapy. Of course, there's lots of different modes of therapy you can use. There's also the education factor, right, where you learn what you were involved in, what it did to you, what the mechanisms of control and manipulation are, what is coercive control, what is thought reform, you know, what is brainwashing. It's not the, the hype, you know, it's never the hype. You always got to dig a little deeper and you get to the real facts and you find out that these are deep wells and that there's a lot to know about them. And the more you know, the better armed you are, the better prepared you are so that you can think your way through Okay, what was confusing about Scientology? I mean, okay, for example, uh, how have I addressed or thought about the TRs, the training routines over the years? This is one of the things that Scientologists hold on to and clutch to themselves for years after leaving Scientology. Oh, the TRs were so great. The comm course was so great, right? I loved it. It was so wonderful. And yet they can't communicate for shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean myself as much as anybody else. I, you know, I might do great on a mic here, but interpersonally, I am just as screwed as everybody else. And I'm, I put my foot in my mouth and sometimes I shove it into the knee. You know, it's just, I, I, I've made every mistake you can make. 
And so to consider myself some kind of master communicator or that I understand communication so well because I did some class and sit and stared at another person for hours and hours and hours or that I spent years off and on over the years practicing these TRs so that I'm just so brilliant at communicating. I mean, you know, I, where I'm going with this, obviously, is that over the years of leaving Scientology, my ideas about this have changed as I've been more and more critical and examined it harder and harder. Yeah, I went from initially saying, like every other, so many other ex-Scientologists, oh, yeah, that comm course was great. It was good. I got something out of it. You know, it's, it's not, don't go into Scientology to do it, but, you know, I got something out of it. And now... After getting educated and educated and educated and finally getting therapy and really working on myself, I can see that those comp course, those, those TRs were complete and utter bullshit. They had, didn't do anything for me. I didn't need that. And I really wish I hadn't done it. I would be a better person for not having done that, right? But it took me years of sorting, sorting, sorting to kind of figure that out for myself. And I'm not insisting that every other person who ever did TRs didn't get anything out of it and would be better off if they hadn't done it. But on the other hand, <laughs> I'm not saying that's not true either. Like it's, it's, For me, it's kind of very individual for each person. You have to kind of come to your own answers when it comes to deeply personal questions like this. And so what I'm, so what I'm kind of putting out there is I think the path to finding those answers is through education and through therapy. Um, because spirituality is a difficult-to-define term. So how I or anybody could tell you or anybody else how to find your spirituality or how to develop your own sense of spirituality, man, that is so personal to you. I, got, I literally have nothing to say about it because I can't even define the term in such a way that I think you and I would easily agree you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a highly subjective term. What is a spirit? You know, are we going to go with Scientology's idea? Are we going to go with uh, uh, Jacob Marley? As, was he a spirit? I mean, are, are they real? Are they not? Is this a thing? What are we talking about? Is this just some kind of energy? Are we talking about ectoplasm? Are we talking about Ghostbusters? You know, ghost hunters? What are we, what do we mean by spirituality? Or are we talking about existence on a whole other plane that has nothing to do with the physical universe? I mean, until we settle questions like that, you know, how do we even have a discussion about this except in the broadest sense? And so for me, I have to kind of kick it back to the person and say, well, you got some figuring out to do for yourself. But the way to do it is to rather than try to immerse yourself in some new belief set or some other person's interpretation of the world and their idea of spirituality or their idea of what meditation should be or what you know this or that or other practice should be, it's really, really incumbent upon you as the person who is going to go do the yoga or the meditation or the spiritual practice or the chanting, or whatever, it's on you to know before you go. You can be victimized, but if you take the time to find out first, or after you've been victimized, to go back and find out how was it done? What did they do, right? What did they say? 
How did you fall for it? How do other people fall for it? What, what is this isolation, manipulation, and control all about? You break it all down like that, and it really helps sort out the bad from the good, the wheat from the chafe. And you're able then to make your own decisions on your own bat, free from the cult influences, as to what it is you want to believe and how you want to go about believing it. I think personally for myself and for for everybody in the world that it should be a fully informed decision and choice that people are making when they when they adopt beliefs, you know, and I think that this idea of foisting beliefs off on kids before they can even think clearly about what it is that they're supposed to be believing, I think that's I think that's the crime. I think that's the wrong. You know that we that we put that on kids and yet we all accept that this is how it's supposed to be and so people keep doing it and uh anyway that's that's a, kind of a separate rant sorry about that shimoda but uh anyway that is uh, what i can say about that you know um yeah untangling and reclaiming it it really is about education and it is about therapy and it, and it is about dealing with whatever the trauma or the stress or the anxiety that that is you know that was there in the first place that the cult was trying to to sort of fill you got to sort that stuff out you know there's really no other way around it except to do that work and uh and i i don't know i hope that is a helpful or useful answer in some fashion and uh feel free with this or any of course with any of the answers i give uh to ask further questions or or tell me i'm full of it or whatever and why uh, don't just tell me I'm full of it. Tell me why. <laughs> and uh, and let me, uh, and, and I can respond to that. So there you go. Oscar Q. Zilch. What do you think is the best way to interact with people you suspect of being trafficked by a destructive cult? Here I am thinking more along the lines of the situation Jen Kiaba was in as a Mooney, where the police are not going to be involved to question a kid selling knickknacks for her church. The two best pieces of advice or the two most general kind of pieces of advice I can give here are that you want to say something very specific to the person you're talking to. There is no generalized thing, right? You don't run up to every single Scientologist and yell, Xenu, and they all go, oh, wow, you know, and, and, and uh, are free from their mental shackles. You, you, know, you got to talk to the person. And so I, I say that, you know, it, it is worth the time to engage a little bit with the person. Who are they? You can tell a lot from tone of voice, attitude, you know, uh, how they carry themselves, how they talk, as to how you might respond to that person in such a way that they will get what you're saying. And don't talk over their head. Don't talk under them, right? Talk to them. Um, that's really, really important. So it's kind of on the fly a little bit there, kind of the kind of the context. Are there other people around? Do you have them alone? You know, you don't want to isolate, manipulate, and control them. But at the same time, you can't be effective if they are surrounded by other group members who are going to pressure or put, you know, immediately invalidate anything you have to say to them. So you know, so timing is also part of this too. But as far as um, you know, things, uh, best way to interact with them with compassion, with care, with understanding, uh, that is really, really going to matter a lot. Your attitude and not, not, you know, send a saccharine sweet. Oh, you poor girl. Don't, don't do that. 
they hate that, right? Nobody, nobody enjoys that. Nobody wants to be, you know, be pat on the head or be treated condescendingly or be told how, you know, how, how, how poor I feel for you and your situation that, you know, that's, that's not gonna, that's not gonna hit. Um, that's not gonna connect. What you want to do is you want to talk to the person. If you can get them to tell you anything beyond their sales pitch or something, any little bits they can tell you are good, right? Get them talking. Um, if they are, um, it, you know, if it appears that there is any kind of, you know, how are you doing? Are you safe? Do you need any help? Do you need anything? Is there anything I can do for you? There's an interesting question to ask somebody. Is there anything I can do for you? Right? That's that's the kind of question a cult member does not expect to be asked. And that could take them, that could, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, in other words, you care about them. Right? This is what I'm trying to get across here. Rather than trying to give you words to say, I'm trying to get the attitude across, right, of what we're trying to do when, we, when we're trying to get, a, you know, to a traffic victim. Uh, and of course, if you are reaching them in a moment of vulnerability or a moment of, of stress or, or something like that, where they might actually take you up on an offer of help or assistance, then make that offer, you know, uh, see if they want help, see if they are in danger, see if they need something. That's the second thing, right? Is very, very much be keenly aware of the fact that they might very well be right on the edge and they might just take your offer of help. It's happened. And, uh, and people have been saved from trafficking and from cult situations uh, by very, very good Samaritans who just noticed something was wrong and asked if they could help. You know, so sometimes it's that simple. You don't have to go into the strategery of it, uh, you know, all the time. Just really be yourself and be caring and, uh, and be compassionate. And that will probably go more, you know, uh, in, that, in, a, in a positive um, interaction than, than in pretty much any other attitude you could approach that with. Uh, and I hope that that answer um, gives some clarification on that. So thanks for asking. Wow. Okay. When you were involved with Scientology, what kind of limits on technology did they have? Was it that you couldn't have social media so you couldn't see the truth? Or was there full access? Would you be punished for looking at the truth? Could somebody in Scientology be punished for looking at your channel and being educated more? Okay, so when I was in the Sea Org, when I was in Scientology and then in the Sea Org, uh, access to social media and the internet was definitely cut off. You're asking here about technology. So uh, I, we didn't really have a whole lot of access to technology, right? We had uh, some phones and stuff around, but, you know, internet connections were few and far between. I was one of the very, very few people on the pack base who actually did have unlimited access to the internet for periods of time because I was out on the road. I wasn't on the base. On the base, they police that stuff out and about. I had a little bit more freedom and I was also being a little bit more clever about it too. I wasn't necessarily informing everybody that I had unlimited access to the internet, but I also was trying to not be abusive about it. And that's the thing is that even when given unlimited access, which I did have, as a missionary in the Sea Org, out on the road, nobody was watching over my shoulder every other minute. And I policed myself. And that's the real thing I wanted to get across on this question is that, 
you know, the limits on the technology are not really the, the, the important, the most important part of this picture. It's the self-policing, the prison of belief that is the more damaging and manipulative aspect of this picture. It is sucks. It does rough that they don't have computers or they don't have full access. I understand that now in the Sea Org, you actually can have limited degrees of access to the internet, but you're, you're filtered. So you're never going to find anything about Xenu or Leah Remini or me or any of that kind of stuff. You're not going to be able to get on YouTube and watch my channel or stuff. They're going to have locks on things, blocks on the, on the, the filters that, that they put on that internet. So there is some external control, but even when you get off the base, which is, you know, on a day off, if a Sea Org member or a staff member in Scientology really wanted to go read me or Leah or Mike or Tony or something like that, they can. I mean, they have the physical ability to do it, and it's not hard. It's not like they live in North Korea or they're China where the where the you know, they are physically bound by, uh, you know, an, an inability to, to get unlimited access. B people can work this out, right? But they police themselves not to because they believe, they are indoctrinated to believe, that it will be harmful to them. That it will be harmful to their spirituality, their spiritual progress, their forward motion, their, their ability to become free thetans, uh, you know, free to roam the earth, to, to make their own planets, to make their own universes, do whatever they want, all this fantastical nonsense uh, that we used to dream about, right, and, and want as Scientologists. And when you're told very sternly and very clearly over and over and over again by your cult leaders, by your seniors, by, by people who you believe who, who have authority to you, when, they, when these people tell you over and over again that this is destructive to your mental health, to your well-being, to your spirituality, you go, okay, it's destructive. I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go there. It's harmful to me. I can't. You know, It's just not right. I just don't want to. I, I don't want to look at that stuff, right? And so you don't want to hear about Xenu. You don't want to watch South Park. You don't want to watch people bagging on Tom or, or, or Scientology or, or any of that. You don't want to hear the critical remarks and the statements. You don't care to hear any of that. Um, not only is it destructive to you, but you also are, it sets up that cognitive dissonance, right? It, it, in other words, you receive this critical information about Scientology, and yet you've got all this positivity about Scientology that you have to believe. You really need this to be true. For your emotional well-being and then here comes this critical stuff ah, screw that i'm not listening to that i'm not getting into that right i got all the truth i need right here that's the life of a cult member so uh so that's the more i as far as i'm concerned at least psychologically that's the more interesting part but as far as the limits go you know yeah they have a filtered internet uh set up and and if you're gonna have internet access at least when i left in 2014, 2013, um, the setup was um, that they would, you could have a laptop or, a, you know, a tablet or something on base, and they had some Wi-Fi access. And this wasn't the sort of thing where you were going to go home or go to your dorm at night and, you know, be playing Call of Duty all night, right? Like, they don't have any video games on base or any of that, and there's no PlayStations or 
any of that. So as far as limits on technology, there's no TVs in the dorms. There's no, at least there's not supposed to be. And um, very limited access to, you know, DVDs or movies or entertainment type things. Um, I suppose one could theoretically stream, you know, get onto some streaming services, but I don't know if they have those locked down or not. I mean, I, if I was in security and um, at Flag or in the Pack Base, you bet I'd be locking down Netflix. Nobody's watching Netflix, you know, at three in the morning on the Sea Org bases. Uh, not using the base Wi-Fi, they're not, because that's a path to get to Scientology in the aftermath, right? Because that's on Netflix. Uh, so, so you're going to have locks and controls like that. All the obvious stuff is going to get locked down. And as far as people being punished, if they watch this channel or went out and found out the truth, yeah, of course they are. They're punished all the time. There's, uh, there's all kinds, there's a whole rounds of ethics actions and disciplinary measures that get taken on a person. And, um, yes, people in Scientology absolutely positively without question, would be punished if they were watching my channel and it was found out by the church. I am a declared suppressive person, uh, status, uh, from Scientology. I am the evil, horrible, awful bad guy. And uh, listening to the very venom that, that, that spews from my microphone here is enough to cause uh, spiritual ruination to all Scientologists. So uh, as at least that's what they believe. So there you go. Tyler Simmons, when Scientologists say that someone has pulled it in, that sounds awfully like the law of attraction. Is this the Scientology version of the law of attraction? All right, I have pulled up here for you guys from uh, verywellmind.com, just because it was one of the first things that came up on my Google search here. Just to clear up for you guys, the law of attraction, in case you've never heard of this before, don't know what we're talking about. The law of attraction is a philosophy suggesting that positive thoughts bring positive results into a person's life, while negative thoughts bring negative outcomes. It's based on the belief that thoughts are a form of energy and that positive energy attracts success in all areas of life, including health, finances, and relationships, okay? So this is pseudoscientific quackery and nonsense. It goes back to old occult beliefs, actually. And you can find this kind of thinking going back centuries. And, you know, via occultism and spiritualism and Madame Blavatsky comes up again. And, and we can trace it all the way back. And there's all kinds of thinking about this that goes way, way, way back. Okay. Uh, and this is the secret... If you've heard of the secret, this is this is the secret. This is it. Oh wow, big secret, you know. Uh, think positive thoughts. You know, put out positive energy, and you'll get positive energy back. It's big. You know, Oprah's big on this kind of crap. It's not true. Okay, where this all stops is in your brain. I mean, it is a very good idea to think positive thoughts and not be a negative Nelly all the time, and balance out your optimism and your pessimism. That's a that's a that's for your for good mental health. That's a good idea. And it is true that our positivity or our negativity has an awful a lot of effect on our mood. Uh, our, and, and you can have a kind of a chronic mood where you're going you know, through life and you're mostly optimistic or mostly pessimistic or you're mostly nihilistic or whatever you want to call yourself. Uh, but if you can, like, again, balance these things, because when they go out of balance, you can be too positive 
everything's great, everything's groovy, this is cult members, that kind of thing. Woohoo, everything's wonderful. And you can avoid, or you can be in denial about rather, uh, real threats, real problems or issues that exist in your life that you really do need to be doing something about. And you can kind of, uh, you know, um, blow them off or not pay attention to them in, in time and end up with, with some disasters on your hands. On the other hand, you know, being too pessimistic, we know, is is also not good because then you don't see any of the good in life and, and life doesn't become worth living anymore and stuff like that. All of this relates to the question because I'm saying that these are the, the, the these positives and negatives matter. It doesn't ever leave your head. It's not thinking all these positive thoughts isn't putting energy out into the world that's going to come back to you in some weird law of thermodynamics way or, some, or something, some nonsensical quantum physics way or something. I mean, there's, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there selling an awful lot of nonsense connected with this idea that if you're a really positive person, you're going to have a really positive life. And you're going to have all these positive, wonderful things happen to you. And it's just not true. You can, as we learned on uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, amongst other places, you, can, you learn that you can do everything right and still fail. That you can be the most positive, amazing, optimistic person ever, and you can still fall flat on your face, shoot yourself in the foot, uh, you know, say the wrong thing, whatever. You can always, always, always screw up big, 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 big time, even though you didn't do anything wrong. The universe is a rather random place. And, uh, and you know, to the degree that we can, you know, be in the driver's seat in our life, you know, we like to be, but we have to recognize our limitations. And this law of attraction thing is a great big sales job to try to, to, try to get people to give over their money, usually, uh, along the lines of thinking these very positive, glowing sort of things, and that this is the secret to uh, success or to uh, life. And L. Ron Hubbard, of course, absolutely positively had this in his playbook. This was uh, this this idea of pulling it in is very, very much along the lines of the law of attraction. It is not exactly the same, though. Hubbard explained it in terms of energy flows, so to that degree, it's it's got some similarities. Uh, he definitely was drawing from this, but it wasn't so much a matter of thinking positive thoughts in Scientology as it was doing right things. This was used in Scientology much more for behavior control than it was for emotional control or mood regulation. It wasn't like there is that factor in Scientology of think positive thoughts, be positive, positive postulating was the term they used in Scientology being very tone 40. You know, your intention is going to stick without any reservations whatsoever. And if you think very positive thoughts about what you want, you postulate it and it will happen. So that so there is that. And I think that might be closer to the law of attraction than the pulling it in thing. Okay, pulling it in has to do with when you commit moral transgressions, when you commit overts, uh, bad deeds, things you're not supposed to be doing. And when you do that. You are hyper aware, Hubbard explains in the materials, you are as a spirit, you're aware of the fact that you're doing things that are really not cool. Uh, you're hurting people, you're stealing, you're doing whatever you're doing, you're lying. And that knowledge and that 
that that energy flow creates Hubbard explains in a very convoluted bizarre way a kind of vacuum in which you are then pulling in flows from other people to you you've outflowed bad things and now you've created a vacuum in which they're going to flow bad things into you and that's why you are pulling it in uh, as they as they say there okay so that's where that comes from so again very very related in thought uh, to the you know nonsense of the law of attraction but not exactly it if I'm reading uh, these things right so I uh, I hope I don't know you know I I, I think that's the the minutia of the differences there is kind of interesting uh, but there you go all right Okay, and those were our answers for this week. I hope that you found these answers interesting, entertaining, and informative, and uh, uh, and all of that. Um, and I hope that you will help support the channel and support the show and uh, support what we're doing here. And by support, I mean, of course, uh, financial assistance is always uh, wonderful. Uh, you know, you want to buy me a cup of coffee or whatever, sign up on Patreon for a dollar a month, no big deal. But it adds up for me and it's really, really helpful. So I hope you guys might consider doing that. Uh, also, of course, just share the show around on the internet. Tell people about what I do here and uh, have them come check out what I, my, my vast array of videos here uh, from which they can learn. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.